Podcasts from the Cat. Voices and sounds from Crew and Nantwich. Today we're talking to the managing director of a company that is using the very building blocks of mankind to develop very special medicines. These are medicines that are based on DNA and generally defined as gene-based therapies. In the hot seat today, we're really pleased to welcome Professor Alan Boyd of Alan Boyd Consultants Limited. Alan, a very special welcome to Business Brunch. Thank you, Des, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here again. Alan, uh, as you quite rightly said, you're here again. Uh, We interviewed you in March 2020, and I don't know where those two and a half years have gone, but I think it would be good to remind our listeners that you're a family man, you're a professor, a managing director, but most of all, you're a doctor, having graduated from medical school almost 40 years ago. So tell us about your career in more detail. Thanks, Des. I grew up in Blackpool and I wanted to be a doctor from a very early age, which was unusual because there was no medical people, not even a St. John's Ambulance Brigade person in the family. But I was determined to be a doctor and uh, I got to the grammar school and sure enough, I uh, was able to enter medical school uh, at Birmingham and I did both uh, medicine and biochemistry. After graduating, I worked in hospital practice and spent actually most of my time for five years at the North Staffs Royal Infirmary at the City General in Stoke, doing uh, acute hospital medicine. And I was training to be a, what's known in the, in, in the medical world as a clinical pharmacologist. These are, it's a specialty that uh, doctors that look after uh, medicines, make sure that patients are getting the right medicines and looking at, shall we say, the effects, both good and bad of medicines. Anyway, after five years, I was persuaded to join the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, I started with, uh, joined big companies like Glaxo, ICI and, and Zeneca. And uh, I, I went on at Zeneca to become the global head of medical research, running all their clinical activities across the world. Um, and then they merged with Astra and became AstraZeneca. Um, and unfortunately, uh, where I was, one level below the board, I wasn't Swedish, so I was made redundant. Um, However, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I went in totally the opposite direction from Big Pharma. I had the opportunity to set up a small biotech company uh, based on gene therapy and it was a spin-out from uh, University College of London and three of us set it up. Uh, Two other guys was the CEO and the CFO and I joined as the R&D director. And we raised uh, venture capital, we floated on the main uh, stock market uh, and got, uh, got funds together to allow me to develop the first gene therapy uh, that uh, got up to almost being a medicine. It was a, a product to treat brain cancer, malignant glioma. And uh, we built the company, we built a manufacturing facility and, uh, and took that product up to the European Medicines Agency. Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't get approved, but it set the pathway for all the other gene therapies that have now been made available. In fact, there are 12 of them now across the world. So uh, I consider myself as a pioneer and people tell me I'm a pioneer, given that I was one of the first people in the late 90s uh, to do it. And I should say, having gone from a big pharmaceutical company to a small biotech with three of them, just three of us, where we started in a little muse office off Tottenham Court Road, people thought I was crazy. 
Uh, anyway, fortunately now, 20-odd years later, people now say, Alan, perhaps you weren't as crazy as you everybody thought you were, having what you've achieved. I now run my own consultancy um, and have done for the last 17 years, helping small companies and universities turn their research ideas into medicines. And we work all over the world, from Sydney to San Francisco, working on many products and ideas um, uh, with a particular focus on gene therapy. As you've already mentioned, Alan, you've worked for some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, and you named Glaxo, ICI, uh, Zeneca, uh, where you were global head of uh, medical research. So Share with us, uh, I think you've already alluded to it, but why you moved from practicing medicine in the first place into the commercial world of research. What what actually drove you to do that? What were your ideas and goals when you started to set up your own business? Yes, well, uh, as well as doing medicine at university, I had the opportunity after the first two years of doing medicine to go off and do a degree in biochemistry. And I completed that degree in, in just over a year. Now you might say, how do you get a degree in a year? Well, actually, we'd covered a lot of the biochemical syllabus at the university in the previous two years. So I, I got a degree in biochemistry. Now, um, the reason I did that was because I was interested in research. Much of the medical training you get is learning about facts and patient uh, symptom recognition and how you fit it all together. It's very different from doing biological research in the laboratory and getting to sort of the root causes of disease and what happens. So um, it was a great opportunity for me to go and do biochemistry. And then I went back into medicine after I got my biochemistry degree and completed the medical work, uh, my medical degree, and obviously then practiced as a doctor and, and still practice as a doctor. So I, I, I got this idea about developing and turning research ideas into medicines. And that's what I was doing really as a postgraduate uh, with the clinical pharmacology work I was doing. But then I had the opportunity to join uh, the pharmaceutical industry and I joined Glaxo. Now, probably most of your listeners will have heard of Glaxo. It's a huge pharmaceutical company. It's in the top three in the world. But when I joined it uh, in 1985, it actually made more money from baby milk and Farley's rusks and other commodities than it did from medicines. And I set up the, the first, uh, first uh, human volunteer unit within the company to actually give drugs to humans for the first time. And I gave several medicines because the, the research engine at Glaxo had been turned on. So I, I gave many medicines to humans for the first time that went on to help build Glaxo into what they are today. So it was antibiotics, it was steroids, it was drugs for heart disease, which was very exciting to do, do that, though at times quite scary. I don't think you know, people quite appreciate that somebody, you know, though medicines you know, are widely available and there's many medicines out there, but actually taking that first step of giving a medicine to a human being, um, that is, uh, you know, you, it's a lot of work to build up to that point uh, to get to that stage. Quite a scary moment, and I would have thought as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I suppose to some degree you, you have an idea of the outcome, but, you, but you're never completely certain. No, that's, that's correct. I mean, uh, we, uh, as, as people know, the one thing about COVID 
is that you know with what was was talked about on the television uh uh, then uh, people know a lot more about how medicines are developed, and so that's that's what I did. You know what I did really is is set on that path, and then eventually, of course, ended up as global head of medical research at Zeneca, and when uh, when uh, you know I was made redundant, went on to in a totally different path and started to develop gene therapies, but it's all science, all medicine. Alan, scientific development is a very interesting field, particularly as scientists embrace failure as progress. And to underpin this precept, I've recently seen failure defined in this maxim as every decision we make has a 50% chance of success and a 100% guarantee to teach us something new. So talk us through how your scientists use failure to move their research forward. Thanks, Des. That's, that's a great question. And I'll be honest, most of the work that I've done during my career has failed because in developing medicines, uh, we're actually doing experiments. And perhaps your listeners don't quite appreciate that. You know, all the work that was done with COVID and the clinical studies was actually, were actually experiments. And uh, again, for, again, for your listeners, those that are, you know even did you know did science at school, uh, and my track record was no different from anybody else in the class when I was doing science. Experiments fail, and you know if you look at medicines development, for every medicine that makes it through the whole process, which takes about twelve years on average, uh, for every medicine that makes it to be a prescription medicine, there are five others that have gone into humans, have gone into the clinic, have gone into clinical trials, but have failed, uh, either for safety reasons or for efficacy reasons, i.e. that it just doesn't work. And behind that, in the research world, there are probably 40,000 individual molecules that have been looked at uh, that just haven't made it even to go into clinic, into the clinic. But of course, you can learn from the from the failures. I remember developing one drug that did make it all the way through uh, to uh, to be a prescription medicine. It was a treatment for asthma. Um, and it was one of the first uh, tablet medicines that was was developed in the in the 90s. And um, it did get approved for treating asthma. But one of the problems that we had was that uh, in some patients, it actually caused uh, a change in their liver function. It was a side effect of the drug. And another company uh, came along, saw how successful, uh, this was at, uh, at Zeneca, how successful it was being in treating patients. And clearly patients had benefits. But w with the problems that they were having, you know, it was a small minority with their livers. Um, they actually produced a new molecule, a different type of a different molecule with some changes in it that didn't cause the liver problems and then went on so there's lots of examples like that uh, that uh, you know that, that we have so it is very important to learn from the failures because it's you can see uh, you know what what's gone wrong and what you can do about it now with in most instances you know if we're dealing with a chemical structure 
then we can, you know, the chemists uh, and the, the medicinal chemists can actually change that structure to try and take out uh, the bit of the molecule that might be causing a problem. And that happens all the time now. In fact, they use, you know, computer simulation to do all that. So, uh, as I say, it's, uh, it, you know, a lot of what I've done has been a failure. I brought about 20 medicines now all the way through to be prescription products. I've got a whole cupboard full of placebos that just didn't make it. <laughs> so if you want a placebo, let me know. <laughs> I certainly will. Alan, we're all very much aware of the vaccines that were developed to control the spread of the COVID virus and how effective they've been, but not necessarily aware that your company was hands-on in the development of the Oxford vaccine. So please tell us more. Yes, we, we were involved, actually, and we got involved with the Oxford vaccine at a very early stage. And uh, I know the group in Oxford. I've, I've worked with them. And um, it was uh, in... I've, I've, I've got an email, actually, that came on the 4th of March 2020 from one of the, one of the medical uh, uh, staff there uh, who I've worked with in the past. And it, the email went along these lines. Hi, Alan. You probably... And you remember, 4th of March uh, 2020 was, you know, about a month before we went into lockdown and, and things like that. And the email went along this side. Dear Alan, um, hope... Uh, you, you appreciate what's going on with the, with the COVID uh, virus around the world. And here at Oxford, we're, we're, we're trying to develop a, a vaccine for it. And uh, we'd wonder, because of your experience in, in medicines development and, and, and the gene therapy side and the biologicals products you've developed, we'd, uh, uh, and the contact with the regulatory agencies, we'd be uh, like you to come and join us and help us out. And the last sentence was interesting. It's probably the understatement of the pandemic. This might prove quite interesting. <laughs> anyway, <certainly did. laughs> anyway, we uh, we got involved, and uh, we uh, our initial things were to talk uh, to try and open up discussions with the regulatory agencies like the MHRA, the FDA, European Medicines Agency, because we knew we had to develop this vaccine quickly and we had to engage the regulators very quickly. So that was the, the path that we embarked upon. Uh, but we stayed, stayed with them even after AstraZeneca got involved, uh, really, again, with our expertise uh, around the vaccine um, and, uh, you know, helped really... Uh, along the manufacturing side, making sure the vaccine was produced properly um, and uh, around really the sort of the a lot of the technical aspects uh, of the vaccine. So yes, it's, uh, there were several people in the company, we worked on it. Uh, 20 hours days was not unusual. And the other interesting thing, it was very rare to actually meet in person. Everything was done virtually on Zoom, on Teams. So, you know, and this was happening all over the world because yeah. we were working with people all over the world. And uh, so that's how it happens. And it's, it's, I'm, you know, really proud that actually I was involved. Uh, there was a lot of people involved, probably hundreds of people all over the world. I mean, for instance, we had about 10 manufacturing sites around the world just producing the vaccine because we knew we had to produce enough for billions of people. Not a few thousand, yeah. uh, but billions. And it worked. Um, Absolutely tremendous achievement. A, a monumental and uh, something you'll probably never forget. No. Podcasts from the Cat. 
Alan, you've been involved in developing uh, a very special genetic medicine that has literally opened people's eyes to this futuristic treatment. So talk us through the, the, this amazing development of this medicine and how it's helped young people regain their sight. Thanks, Des. As, as you said at the beginning of this, uh, this interview, uh, I've uh, spent the latter half of my career developing gene therapies based on, on DNA. And um, I was one of the first people to take uh, a gene therapy all the way through its development program and almost got it approved as a prescription medicine. But uh, after that, I, I came across a group working in Philadelphia at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia who were uh, developing a gene therapy for uh, an inherited eye disease which causes blindness in children. So uh, these children have a, a mutation of the chemical at the back of the eye, rhodopsin, and it's a, it's a gene mutation. And so that the rhodopsin, which senses the light, uh, the chemical there, uh, is, is actually not right. And due to this mutation, it is actually a toxic chemical in the eye. And over the years, it, this accumulates and causes children to go blind. So by the age when they're in their teenagers, they're born with normal sight, but over their, their so say 15 to 20 years, they go blind. And so this group at the children's hospital had identified the gene, one of the genes that caused the problem. And so we set about developing a gene therapy to prevent this happening and replacing the mutant gene with the correct gene. And uh, so we started off uh, having identified the, gr the group, the three of them actually, at uh, the Children's Hospital. Um, and uh, we, I worked with them to think about how they're going to develop this idea. And uh, we, uh, we, we laid out what, uh, you know, what work needed doing, how to manufacture it, the animal studies we had to do, and then the clinical studies. And we interacted then with the regulatory agencies. And uh, eventually, this uh, academic group actually formed a company called Spark Therapeutics, uh, based in Philadelphia. And uh, uh, they raised lots of money. They floated on the New York stock market to actually pay for all this work. And in the end, we, uh, we did clinical work. We uh, put it to the FDA in, in America, to the European Medicines Agency in Europe, and it got approved for treating uh, inherited blindness. It's it, for those of people, listeners who are interested. It's the RPE65 gene. It's a rare condition. Affects between six and ten thousand children in the world. So it is rare. But for these children, it's de devastating. And uh, it's uh, the way it actually uh, restored their sight in many cases. And we've got some great videos uh, there's, uh, that, uh, we, that were put together by the company, uh, Spark Therapeutics, of, uh, say, for instance, a, a little boy getting out of the car with his mum with a white stick, going into the hospital to be assessed. And the next shot, and this would only happen in America, uh, there's a shot of a, a road coming over a hill, and it says below the bottom, 12 months later after treatment, and he comes over the hill on his bicycle. That was that was amazing. And to think that, you know, we'd been able to do that. That medicine now, it's called Luxterna, is available, uh, you know, in many countries of the world. It's been used here already uh, to help these children with this rare disease, which is quite amazing. 
I, I think. And it's clearly laid the foundation. I mean, I'm, we're involved now in about 10 different um, clinical studies that involve other genes in the eye to help cure blindness, which is fantastic for the children and their families. It is amazing. And something I find difficult to get my head around that, um, that you're no longer giving chemical uh, medicines, that that this is actually affecting the building blocks of the human body. So it's, uh, it is absolutely amazing, and long may it continue. Yes, and of course, you know, there's, as I say, there's now 12 uh, gene therapies approved on either side of the Atlantic, and I've been fortunate, along with my team, to have worked on about eight of them at some time. We haven't taken them all the way through like we did with, with Spark, but we've done a lot of work, and a lot of our work is still based on gene therapy. It's like you say, uh, it's, it's correcting nature's mistakes. Yeah, really. it, it's terrific. It really is. I'm sorry to have to move you on from that subject, but it, it, you're doing a wonderful job, Alan. Brexit is something of a Marmite subject, so you, you were either in or you're out. However, in reality, it has affected how some businesses trade, and in some respects, it has severely disrupted medical research in the UK. So share with us how it's affected your company and what steps you've taken to mitigate these effects. Yes, yes, Brexit, uh, it was an amazing time. I, I should say, um, at the time, I was president of the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine at the Royal College of Physicians. And the, there are 24 Royal, College, Royal Medical Colleges in the UK, and we all come together at the Academy of Medical Colleges. And I remember uh, the first council meeting we had after Brexit had happened. And people were, you know, lots, a lot of people obviously were against Brexit. And, uh, and, you know, what can we do to try and reverse this? This was the conversation in the medical profession at the time in uh, 2016. Um, but I took a different view because I realised... It, it would be impossible to try and reverse a lot of what had happened, you know, and there was a lot of talk, can we have another referendum? I realised it, it wouldn't happen. And I felt that as a medical profession, we shouldn't even get engaged on that. But what we needed to do as a profession was make sure that we came out of Brexit for the benefit of patients. And so one of the big problems we, we had was actually making sure that after Brexit and when we split out from the European Union, we could get medicines into the country. And, uh, you know, that was a big worry. Um, and we worked with the Department of Health to make sure that happened because two thirds of our medicines in the UK come from outside of, are not made in the UK. So that was an issue. The other issue which you touched on was research. We worked uh, very closely with, with our medical colleagues and our scientific colleagues right across Europe and, you know, had grants. I mean, I worked on a, I was working on a particular collaborative program for inflammatory bowel disease. And there was 12 of us. And we got a grant from the European Union of about 6 million euros uh, to take this forward. And since Brexit, of course, a lot of that has, has fallen apart which is a real shame. And now I think, you know, the problem we've got still is the Northern Ireland Protocol. 
And certainly, uh, and this is sort of political, it's actually very difficult because of that. The European Commission really are, are not allowing the UK to get involved in, in research projects like we used to do. So it's a bargaining tool. Hopefully, if we can solve the, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, and I believe there's discussions going on in a few weeks, then we'll be able to get involved. But it has been a big problem, the fact that we can no longer take part in the pro in research programmes we used to do. Comes on to exchange of students as well. That's very difficult, you know. Now, with my own business, the way I've responded, because I've mentioned the European Medicines Agency several times, uh, in order to interact on a face-to-face -face basis with the European Medicines Agency, which is vital to the work we do, I've actually set up an office and a company in Dublin. So uh, I know it may sound strange, we've had break, uh, Brexit, but, you know, for the benefit of patients, we have to do this. So I've got an office in Dublin now, I employ people in Ireland, so we can interact with the European Medicines Agency. So, uh, you know, we've taken steps, and it's all because I believe, you know, we need to do the best for patients. Alan, amongst your many qualifications, you're also a business mentor. So share with us what advice you would give to, to young entrepreneurs thinking of starting their own business. I, uh, I get, get asked this question a lot. And if I, if I look at myself and what I did, you know, I've talked about the fact I set up one of the world's first gene therapy companies in, in the late 90s. In retrospect, I wish I'd have left the big pharmaceutical company earlier and and set it up earlier or at least a biotech company because you know i i felt i had an entrepreneurial spirit and i know i often brushed up people the wrong way when i was in big pharma because i wanted to change things but uh, you know people can appreciate trying to change things in a big company is very difficult um so out i went and as i've said people thought i was crazy but I realized that, you know, I'd had a fantastic career till then. You know, I was, you know, very senior in a, a large pharmaceutical company. And I, I sounded a very, you know, many people out. Am I really crazy, you know, doing this? And the feedback from many people is, Alan, go and try it. Uh, because if you're a success, then that's great. If you fail, you can always, you know, with your experience, you won't be short of employment. So I'm glad I did it. But of course, the product didn't work or rather it wasn't approved. And uh, it was taking a big risk. I mean, we raised in the end about 150 million pounds uh, to develop the product. We, um, we grew, uh, we had about 200 staff. And um, when it didn't work, of course, I had to make all those people redundant. So, but we took the risk and it's paid off because it's paid, paved the way for all these other treatments that have come. So I think my advice is don't be afraid to take risks because setting up a business is risky. But again, you know, it's, it, I think it's, it depends on your time of life. I mean, if you've, you know, when I, when I was doing it, of course, I had t uh, teenage children with a, you know, a mortgage and things like that. So you have to think about that. Uh, but I, I, I th felt it was a considered risk that I took. And, uh, you know, if uh, I'm seeing now, you know, younger people, uh, you know, because I, I do a lot of teaching at university and, and universities and, and give lectures and things, they're all very keen to turn their research ideas, and many of most of them are scientists, to turn their research ideas into medicines and take it further. So my, my advice to them is try it. You know, life's too short. 
And uh, so go out there, take a risk, a considered risk. And if it doesn't work, you can always backtrack. And most of the time, if it doesn't work, you'll learn from those failures, as we've talked about before. Absolutely. Okay, so the the future sounds incredibly exciting uh, for you, your staff uh, and your business. So talk us through what you've got planned to move it forward. Yes, it's uh, the last few years has, has been actually very exciting. And, you know, the work uh, we did with Oxford and the vaccine clearly uh, has, you know, helped us uh, establish ourselves as a company and, and get known. And uh, in fact, during the, just before the pandemic uh, started, I engaged a consultancy to help me uh, really decide where should I take the business in future? Because that was the company was about 15 years old then and we were growing uh, we were successful and we did, you know, about 30% of our work was coming from America. Um, and so I engaged with this consultancy uh, to help look at my business. And they went over my company with a fine tooth comb and made some recommendations. They said, if you, you know, if you want to grow, you need more people. Uh, you also need to establish, you've got your office in Dublin, you need, you know, we've worked in America, you need to establish an office in, in, in America. So uh, last year we, we, we achieved that, we established an office, it's in, it's in Philadelphia, and we employ people. And uh, we've, uh, we're now actually getting more business in America uh, for the American company. Uh, so it has it's certainly grown i've gone from before the pandemic i employed about 18 20 people i've doubled the size in the last last year we've now got 40 people based working around most of them are remote working now again it's a benefit of the uh, of the pandemic uh, working remotely and um, we've got clients from sydney to san francisco um, we're working with about uh, 80 different company with 80 different projects and it's all looking very bright and, and people are coming to me. So in terms of moving it forward, because of our particular expertise in, 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 in gene therapy, uh, people are coming to us uh, all the time for help. So it's a great situation to be in um, and it, it's a great atmosphere and uh, it's it's going to be more of the same i mean uh, you know as uh, as you can see des i've got white hair uh, <laughs> but i've uh, i've no plans to retire at the moment i feel i've got far too much yet to give i am winding down a bit i mean i've now got two grandchildren i've had my second grandchild uh, just is what four months old so i do take make sure i spend time with them and uh, I love gardening and certainly my elder grandson, who's, who's now uh, three and a half, we spend a lot of time in the garden. So I'm trying to get that work-life balance. You've but taken the words out of my mouth. Really, you've earned that, haven't you? And, and it's a credit to the fact that you took the risk in the first place. Yeah. So, Alan, it's been a, a real privilege and a pleasure to meet you again. And, and thank you so much for giving us an insight or further insight into the world of gene therapy. If any of our listeners want to contact you, how can they find more information about Alan Boyd Consultants? Uh, we've got the website, which is www.boydconsultants, and consultants with an S, boydconsultants.com. Alan, thank you for coming on The Cat today. It's been a pleasure, Des, as always. Thanks. Go to listen.thisisthecat.com for more podcasts and more ways to listen.